Philippians chapter 1. Um, we're finally, we kind of, we've been starting slowly, and last week we took a detour into Acts, uh, but we're ready to jump in now uh, into uh, sort of the little bit after the introduction in Philippians 1. So let's read together Philippians 1, reading from verse 3, and immediately beginning with that theme of joy and thankfulness, which characterizes the whole book. This is what Paul writes. He writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's where we're going to stop for this morning. Um, we're not going to, even in a short passage like that, we're not going to be able to talk about all of it, uh, but we're going to dip in here and there and focus on a couple of the, the themes that are in, in there. But I'd love to encourage you to go back later and read it again and read it again and see what else comes to light uh, as you read for yourself. Um, but we jump right in at the beginning with this theme of joy, which has been, which is characteristic of the whole letter. Uh, but what's all the more remarkable, we've said already, People call this a, an epistle of joy, and it kind of overflows with thanksgiving and joy. But what's all the more remarkable about that, which we haven't really talked about, is that Paul is writing the letter from prison. And you probably saw the reference there as we read to Paul's chains. And there are several mentions through this letter of Paul being in chains and being imprisoned. Uh, probably at this point, Paul is in prison in Rome, awaiting trial. So he's he's... He's not free. His hands, his legs are bound. He's imprisoned. He's waiting for others to make a decision uh, about what's going to happen to him. Um, Paul is in prison and he writes a letter that's brimming with joy. And immediately we wonder how that is possible. Uh, but actually, it makes me go back in my mind to another story in Acts 16, which we didn't read last week. Because um, on Paul's first visit to Philippi, after the adventure with Lydia and the woman by the river that we, we read last week, Paul ends up being imprisoned. And you can go and read for yourself why that happened. But you may have a memory, if you've read that passage before, of what happened to Paul and Silas when they were in prison in Philippi. Was that in the middle of the night, when they were in kind of, not solitary confinement because there were two of them, but whatever you call it when there's two of them, uh, but they were... Uh, in this prison in the middle of the night, what, what did they do? The story tells us after being stripped and beaten and flogged with their feet and stocks in the inner cell of the prison, 
they sang hymns. It must have been a remarkable thing uh, to hear coming out of uh, the prison, the sound of the most incongruous thing, praise rising from a place of imprisonment. And so the theme is there in Paul's visit to Philippi, and it's here now as he writes the letter. How is Paul able, whenever he's in prison, to sing songs of praise? How is Paul able, whenever he's in prison again, to write a letter that is brimming not with bitterness and complaint and grumbling, but with thanksgiving and joy? I think it's a really challenging, um, important question. You and I want to know whenever our life is not going well, when things are hard, whenever things are frustrating, whenever uh, things are not the way we wish they were, is it possible to be like Paul? Is it possible for praise to rise from our our lips? Um, I want to suggest this. I wonder, I don't know what you would uh, reflect on the possibility of joy in the middle of difficulty, Um, but I want to suggest this, and you can reflect on it uh, as you go today. Um, I want to suggest that joy is a gift. Joy is a gift from God. In Galatians 5, Paul says it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit of God produces in our lives. So it's not something we can manufacture or muster up. It's something we receive with open hands as a gift from God. It's a miracle of the Spirit in our lives. Um, So I want to suggest joy is a gift, but maybe that leaves us kind of a little bit frustrated. We think, is is joy just going to be elusive where it's going to come and go and there's nothing we can do to... Um, to make it happen. Um, that, could, that sounds like that could be a frustrating way to live. Um, but I want to suggest this, that thanksgiving is a choice. That joy is a gift, but thanksgiving is a choice and a discipline in our lives. Paul begins the words we read today saying, I, I give thanks every time I pray for all of you in all my prayers for all of you. And then he says, I pray with joy. And I think the thanksgiving comes before the joy. We can't create joy, but we can choose thanksgiving. It's a habit and a practice and a discipline. We can choose every day, um, at least once, maybe more than once, to pause for a few moments and give thanks. And that practice creates the conditions where joy can grow. I think there's something about thanksgiving. It it prepares the soil of our hearts to receive the gift of joy. Joy is a gift. Thanksgiving is a a choice. We can turn our hearts deliberately in that direction. Um, And later on in the letter, uh, when we get to Philippians chapter 4, we'll find Paul encouraging us to pray about everything, pray all the time about everything. But we'll find that little phrase, he'll say, but do it with thanksgiving. Um, So Paul encourages us, pray always, do it with thanksgiving. But here at the beginning of the letter, he gives us a little glimpse of his own practice. As he is praying, he is always giving thanks. Every time Paul prays for the Philippians, and it sounds to me like he prays for them a lot, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Um, And he gives thanks as he he prays. Um, I think there's a really striking thing that um, 
thanksgiving and gratitude is something being talked about a lot in our culture at the minute. And modern scientific research has shown that a daily gratitude practice, when you simply pause for a few moments and name some things you're thankful for, that's all we're talking about. Just name a few things that you're thankful for. But the scientific research is showing it has a dramatic, measurable effect on your well-being and your mental health. And that's true even for people who don't believe in God. I, I always find it a little bit puzzling, the idea of gratitude and thanksgiving, um, if you don't believe there's a giver. Um, I'm not quite sure who you're thanking. Um, but, but just the practice of naming some things you're, you're, you're grateful for um, will do you good. Um, G.K. Chesterton famously said, the worst moment for an atheist is when you feel profoundly grateful and you've no one to thank. Uh, but how much more if we believe that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from a father who loves to give good gifts to his children, how much more if we pause for a few moments every day and just name the things that we're thankful for? It will do you good at a profound level. Um, joy is a gift, but I want to encourage you this week, Thanksgiving is a choice. You can turn your heart in that direction. Um, I think um, there's another clue in these verses as we're trying to puzzle around kind of the secret of Paul's joy. Uh, I think he gives us another clue um, in this beautiful phrase. He says to the Philippians that we are confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. I think it's one of my favorite phrases in Paul. We are confident of this for ourselves, for each other, that the one who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Um, Paul's joy is rooted in his confidence that God has begun something and God will finish it. Um, in other words, I think joy comes as we pay attention to God's actions in the past and the present and the future, what God has done, what God is doing, what God is going to do. Um, I don't know about you, but when I, what I find for me, whenever I focus only on my own actions or even on the actions of the people around me, life can kind of start to feel fragmented and random and meaningless. Um, your days can start to feel just a bit bitty, like stuff happens and people do things and I do things and people react and I react and life goes on and it's just one thing after another, but it's fragments. Um, and I think that sense of incoherence and fragmentation can lead to a loss of joy. It's hard to have joy when life feels bitty and meaningless and fragmented. Um, but the truth is that life is not random and meaningless. Actually, we are part of a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And I think there's something there that's really important for the cultivating of joy, to know that you're part of a story that has a beginning and a middle and an end, that God has begun something, that God is doing something, that God is going to finish the story and bring it to a good ending. And so maybe as well as encouraging you to the simple practice of thanksgiving, I want to encourage you this week maybe to do something else, just to take a few moments with this phrase from Philippians, 
and think about past, present, future. Just take a few moments this week to remember what God has already done in your life. And maybe to write it down or maybe just to name it out loud. What are the things God has already done in your life and begun? And just name those things, things in the distant past, things in the recent past. What has God already done? And then secondly, take a, take a second to recognize where you are. And remember, um, maybe you want to look in the mirror for this bit. Look in the mirror and remember that God hasn't finished with you yet, which I think can be a very encouraging thing. I don't know about you, I'm glad that where I am right now is not the end of God's work in my life because I'm aware of a lot of rough edges and a lot of mucky stuff and a lot of mess and a lot that I would love to see God, where I, where I would love to see God work. And so remind yourself in the present, God hasn't finished with me yet. I'm not yet the finished article. I'm a work in progress. And even on the days when I can't see it, he's working. He's carrying it on. He's continuing what he's begun. So remember what God's already done. Take a moment to remember that he's already working right now. That right now when you're sitting doing nothing, God is at work doing this good work in you. And then thirdly, turn your eye to the future. And remember that one day he will finish the process. And Paul, twice in the passage that we read, Paul talks about the day of Christ Jesus. Um, it's Paul's version of the Old Testament phrase, the day of the Lord. Um, he calls it the day of Christ, the day of Jesus. Um, one day when Jesus appears and you see him face to face, then the process will be finished. Um, it says in 1 John, uh, whenever we see him face to face, then we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And so the day is coming when you're going to, and there's, there's lots of ways of describing this. Um, there's, there's a day coming when you're going to be completely holy, when you're going to be fully alive, when you're going to be fully human, when you're going to be fully yourself, the self that God created you to be, when you're going to be like Jesus. And actually part of what I love is all those phrases that I've just used in the end mean the same thing. To be holy is to be fully human, is to be fully alive, is to be fully yourself, is to be like Jesus. And that's the end of the story. That's where your story is headed, even on the days when it really doesn't feel like that's where you're headed. That's where you're headed. Um, and so I want to encourage you this week, take a moment to ground yourself in that, the past, the present, the future, what God has done, what he's doing right now, what he's going to finish uh, whenever Jesus appears. That'll be enough to go home with, right? But I have a little more I want to I talk about. Um, I want to mention really briefly in passing um, and encourage you to do your own reflecting on this. Paul's affection for the Philippians. I think Paul, the, the love that Paul expresses for the Philippians, I think is stronger than in any other letter. Uh, that he writes. Um, and he, he says at one point, I have you in my heart. And then he says this, he says, I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, and I was reading this week in one of the commentaries, um, and it said, I find this really striking, that the, the word for affection there in the Greek, um, is the, the Greek word is viscera. And some of you may immediately kind of know where that comes from, that 
We, we talk about something being visceral, and viscera refers to the guts, refers to your bowels, right? So I hope this is not too just uncomfortable to think about, but it, it's, it's talking about loving someone so deeply that you carry them in your gut. Right? I, I think it's an incredibly powerful phrase, so that when they suffer, you suffer, so that whatever they're going through, you are with them, not only in your heart, but actually down in your guts. I carry you in my heart. I long for you with the, that gut-level affection that Christ has for us and that now we learn to have for each other. Um, and I find that just in passing really challenging. Do I have that kind of love for my brothers and sisters? Um, it's the, the love that Jesus pours into our hearts by his Spirit it's the kind of love he wants us to have for each other. And if we ask him, he'll give it to us. Um, I wonder if you ever loved someone else with that kind of visceral, gut-level love. Um, but I want to I move on to uh, spend our last few minutes uh, thinking about Paul's prayer for the Philippians. Um, I love Paul's prayers in all of his letters. Um, I think I, my wife always tells me off that every every verse that I'm talking about I say is my favorite so right now this is my favorite of Paul's prayers um, I, I reserve the right to change my mind next time um, uh, Paul's prayers I'm sure you know are they're incredibly rich incredibly meaningful um, they often contrast a little bit with maybe the way we sometimes pray for each other where we we just say Lord bless so and so and bless so and so um, and I think Paul Paul's prayers are they're full of gospel truth and they're full of pastoral heart uh, as well. And I think the best thing we can do with Paul's prayers is take them and pray them and use them as the basis for our own prayers. So you can carry this prayer into this week. And as you're struggling to know, what, what could I pray for my mom or my housemates or uh, people I know who are going through a hard time or um, someone who I'm finding difficult, what could I pray for them? Paul's prayer can help us take it and Make his words your own, um, but I want to focus. Um, I want to focus just on the first part of Paul's prayer, uh, when Paul says this: "This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight." I've been really taken by that that part of the prayer, um, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge. And depth of insight. Um, I think what I've been struck by is the fact that Paul could easily have prayed for just one of those two things. In other words, he could have just prayed that their love would abound more and more, that they'd be more and more full of love, and that would be a really good thing to pray. That's a good prayer. Or he could have prayed that they would grow in knowledge and insight, become more knowledgeable, become more wise and insightful. And that's a really good prayer to pray. But there's something really powerful in the way Paul brings these two things together. I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. There's something a little bit surprising. We wouldn't always think to bring those two things together. And it's led me to reflect this week. Um, love by itself, without knowledge and wisdom, can become sentimental or soft or indulgent 
where we, we have warm-hearted feelings for another person and we wish nothing but good things for them. We wish them good. But we can actually end up doing them harm if we don't know how to love them wisely. Because sometimes we end up in a, a kind of indulgent love where we, we never challenge, we never question, we never speak difficult truth, we never have difficult conversations. And it's just loving warmth without wisdom. And on the other hand, knowledge by itself without love, I think we all know, can do all kinds of harm. We can wield knowledge like a weapon and we can become very proud and arrogant of all that we know. Paul, Paul says in another letter, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Um, and we can become critical and judgmental and we can focus on issues and forget the real flesh and blood human beings that are involved. Or we can focus on being right and forget about doing good <laughs> to those we are engaging with. And so love by itself can become a bit watery and vague and indulgent. Knowledge by itself can cause real harm. Love and knowledge need to work together. Um, by the way, I, I don't think they're exactly equal. I think knowledge serves love rather than the other way around. Um, the greatest command that we've been given is not know lots of things about God and know lots of things about your neighbor. It's to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. That's our greatest command. But love needs to be seasoned with knowledge and insight. Love needs to be wise and discerning if it's going to do good. Um, there's something, just as I've been reflecting on this, I think there's something here that I think speaks to our cultural moment. Um, and I find this challenging, and I hope it might make sense uh, to some of you as well. Um, we've talked before about how um, our culture has become more and more divided and tribal in a way that I find really dispiriting and really discouraging. Um, and in some ways, I think you could describe the culture wars in our world in terms of a division between love and knowledge or truth. And so you, you can tell me later if this resonates with you or makes sense. One tribe in our culture wants to rally around the flag of love, where love is the only thing that matters. Um, and there's all kinds of slogans that can go with this that say love wins and love is love and the only thing that matters is to be kind. Um, and in, in rallying around the flag of love, sometimes any claim to truth or knowledge can be questioned, but love is always beyond question. Love is the key. And so there's a rallying around the flag of love, and there's a simplicity about that. Uh, but there's another tribe in our culture uh, that then wants to rally around the flag of truth, and that says truth is under attack and traditional beliefs and values are threatened and what matters is to hold firm and hold on to truth and draw a line and take your stand and right and wrong and black and white and truth is the key. Right. You see how the two polarize. Um, the thing that I find really challenging to think about is, I, and I, I'm going to maybe take a risk in saying this, I think if you choose just one of those two, life can be relatively simple. Because if love is all that matters, then no matter what comes my way, 
everything's okay, everything's to be welcomed and affirmed and celebrated. You'll get no judgment from me. You do you. You live your life. You speak your truth. And I'll be here to love and encourage and catch you. And that's relatively simple, just to find a posture of love. And equally, if truth is all that matters, then all I've got to do is go to my study and work out a correct opinion on every issue and work out the right, the right doctrinal belief and the right moral value and then speak it loudly without compromise and not worry about the complexities of people and real human lives and their messiness and their wounds and their fears and their dreams and all the rest. And in both cases, if you go all out for love or you go all out for truth, I think you'll, you will get some flack from the other tribe but you'll also get a lot of encouragement from your own tribe because those who also rally around that flag will tell you you're being really brave and standing for love or you're being really brave and standing for truth and you'll get lots of likes if you put it on social media because there's a whole tribe ready to, to, to gather around. But you know what is really, really difficult in our world and takes real courage is to walk a path of love and knowledge, to walk a path of grace and truth, to walk a path of kindness and wisdom, and to work out how to love real people in all their messiness and complexity and humanity, but also to love intelligently and skillfully and wisely and truthfully. It's really difficult. Um, it means you've got to work out when to speak and when to be quiet, and when we need to encourage or practically help someone, and when we need to challenge or rebuke, and when it's our responsibility to get involved, and when it's really none of our business, and how to love people we don't agree with, or how to love people we don't like, which can be even harder, um, or how to love a friend when they're making choices that we think are foolish or harmful to themselves. And all of that is really, really difficult. And where do I want to end? By saying Jesus is the one who shows us the way. Because he is the one who is full of grace and truth, it says in John 1. Um, and by the way, when it says Jesus is full of grace and truth, I don't think that means he's half grace and half truth. It means he's overflowing with both. Um, you look at how Jesus loves people. Have you ever seen grace like that, or kindness like that, or welcome like that, to every kind of person you can imagine. And yet the love of Jesus also leads them to sometimes speak really difficult truth, and sometimes people walk away sad and he lets them walk. And sometimes people hear what he says and start to plot to kill him, and he continues to love them even unto death. If you want to know how to walk with love and knowledge, grace and truth, then Jesus is the one who shows us. And so this is what God has been challenging me about this week. As our culture fragments into tribes, calling each other names and throwing rocks from inside their own bunkers, as followers of Jesus, we must not play those games. We must not rally to the flags of our culture, whether they're flags of the left or the right, of woke or anti-woke, of progressive or conservative, flags of love without truth 
or truth without love. But our allegiance is always only to Jesus our King, who shows us a more excellent way and a more difficult way. But he gives us his own spirit so we can begin to walk in that way.